Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. On today's One for the Road, my special guest is a burn survivor, a mental health advocate and a real inspiration. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Terry Dunnage. Hello Terry, it's an absolute privilege having you on my show today, One for the Road. I honestly feel so honoured that you've agreed to join me. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'd like to say hi, David. Um, Thank you for having me on, mate. I know we've uh, done something before together, but I looked forward to this one because you're someone yeah. I've held highly. Thank you so much, mate. Well, I, look, I normally like to start actually where you grew up, what was your childhood like and uh, move from there, really. Okay, so childhood, I was born in Hammersmith, Queen Charlotte's. I think I was as a baby was in Chiswick, then moved to Norfolk, Middlesex. I think I was around about four or five then. So I lived on the Woodend Estate, started off on there, a council estate in Norfolk on the borders of Greenford. And um, I think we were there till I was about seven or eight and then moved to the Wireless Estate on Lancaster Road in Norfolk. And that was pretty much right for up till probably 2007. Growing up from there, we, my mum and dad were divorced. They got divorced. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. Well, he, he had an addictive nature to anything he was doing because he's had a few addictions. My mum, through the breakup, went for a bit of a breakdown, I think. And then she got with a tattoo artist, become a, living a rock and roll lifestyle, drinking and doing drugs herself. So there was me and my twin sisters. They were sort of staying with my mum's friends. I was, I was rebelling because I was young. So I was getting into all sorts. From middle school onwards, I was getting into trouble. From there, what did it, from from getting into so then I went to live with my dad, I believe, because I kept wanting to live with him on my own choice, and I think my mum was too busy partying and doing what she was doing, so she thought well, it's a good idea let him deal with you. Went to live with my dad. That was a whole other ball game. I had the, all the freedom I wanted because he was an alcoholic and a womanizer. So he used to run a football team, Parkfield Youth, where I used to play football um, with the likes of Richard Langley, um, Jason Roberts, and all that. I used to play with them. And my dad was just womanizing all the parents. So we had a and b because he, he took custody of me. Or share, no, he took full custody. We got a and b and he was never there because he was off drinking and he used to chain smoke. Because that's what I remember. I was always, so I basically had to, from about 12 years old, I was on my own in a and b I used to have to rob the breakfasts to have dinner and lunch because I was like the trampy kid at school because I had nothing. And my dad really was on another planet at the time. From the... I got sort of the people got involved. At, this is other parents on the football club. So back in the day, you used to get like a book, didn't you? You know, like a child maintenance book where they used to sign it, didn't you? And used to uh, get your money for you. And someone took me on, another family took me on for, for this book for no other real reason. Cause I'd like to say there was really amazing people when I, so I was basically in care, but I wasn't, I've, I had a whole load of trauma there. I was, I was still the trampy kid. 
my dad didn't, was never really around for his addiction. My mum was too busy putting her man first and doing whatever she was doing. She was living in a ver versatile or volatile, sorry, relationship where he's fight beating her up and they're drinking and all the time as well. And uh, so living with this lady, I was a little bit off the rails, don't get me wrong, but I think as a kid, you don't really deserve too much that's happening to you. But I used to get locked in my room from the outside in for like three or four days at a time. So I was like, like, like being on a segregation, segregation unit. So from there, I, I took up the gym. I lied at the gym in Harrow Leisure Centre. It was the only escape I, I could have because I literally, like, I really struggled mentally as a child. I had nowhere to go. So I had to make loneliness my best friend, believe it or not. I I actually remember, as sad as it sounds, but it's quite important because I think a lot of people have been there. My dad, because he was a, a chain smoker, there was always matchboxes and empty fag packets. So I had this little orange alien key ring where the key ring had fell off it and you shake it and the eyes move. And uh, I put that in a matchbox and a little bit of toilet tissue as a blanket. I talked to that for three years of my life, my teenage life. So from... Like 12 to 15, I, that, that was my only friend in the world because that was the times when I was on my own and locked in this room after that. I used to talk to that's the thing that sort of got me through it all. So I lied I lied at 15 about my age at Harrow Leisure Centre. I got into the gym and there was a gym instructor there who knew I was lying but let me train. So I used to train. That was my escape, fitness. And I used to do that and boxing. And that's what I used to love. And Taekwondo was the three things I loved because anything not to go back to that house, because anything I would say in that house, no matter what it was, how trivial, I'd be locked away. And I'm talking like Christmases where they, they had their own kids and everyone would get everything. And I'd get like the knockoff naff naff jacket I always dreamed of, but they'd get the real ones. They'd get Game Boys. And do you know what I mean? You know, things like that. Like it's not a hard luck story because it actually really taught me resilience, which later on you'll see how it helped me so for 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 a sad childhood where i had nowhere to go i once actually ran away from there believe it or not the the guy with the 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 guy that lived in the house was in the ta so he's a big guy and he had a club 90 so once there was there was making me move it and clean it ready for the barbecue and it's just a funny story so i thought i'd say it and it used to ride it to start it so i read it and it would never start so i read it all the way from harrow to norfolk to go to my mum's just to try I, I thought oh, fuck it I've got to tell her that I, I need to uh, talk what's on my mind and what I'm going through at the house and I got there they weren't there so my sisters were there and they said uh, they're coming back from the pub in a minute I had to hide under the bed because my stepdad used to hate me so I hid under the bed and he knew I was there because I see this club night he looked for me he actually beat me up broke two of my ribs and I had to ride this bloody thing back and get locked away again for three days <laughs> in, the, in this house for, for the privilege of riding his bloody club 90 around the thing so uh yeah the, the funny story of that is what i'm saying when you tried to this is how you know bad it was you tried to escape to actually you built the courage up think you know what i need to talk and get some help here but there was no believe me when i say there's no help there so yeah so i sort of made loneliness my friend from a child i imagine that the gym though when they knew that you were lying about your age and they accepted you into the gym that the acceptance there must have been so strong for you because quite of your childhood was surrounded by rejection wasn't it of being locked away and yeah yeah I think that was that was like I I can't never forget the, the guy's face you know like when they when they you know that that's why I think like you said yeah because it was acceptance and it, it was someone that actually gave me a break you know what I mean that, that actually that my taekwondo teacher because as a kid I used to watch Bruce Lee films and it was the only fantasy I could outlive of something that I actually enjoyed watching that was my escape and the gym instructor or he weren't, I think he like a 
you know, whoever's on, he was on the desk. So he was like a manager or whatever he was, a trainer. I don't know what he actually his position was, but he'd check your membership when he went in and whatnot and still be training people. But he used to see me walk because he actually said to me, he said, I see you walking home like, and you was shouting out, swearing and that. <laughs> he said, I just want to make sure you're right in yourself. I said, no, I was arguing with God that day. He said, what do you mean? And he, he actually took the time to listen to me sometimes. And I remember the situation. I was walking back from the leisure centre, but I'd been boxing. So I wasn't actually in the gym side. And I think he was either walking or he was whatever. And I, and I was actually, and I remember it vividly because I was arguing with God because I couldn't afford a jacket. So I only used to have my school blazer. And it was absolutely hammering down. And I had the, no one would ever be there to collect me. So I had the biggest ass walk to do. And I was arguing with him all the way, saying that you're not going to break me, no matter how wet you get me and all that. And that, that particular night, although he remembered it, is what I'm saying, is when someone actually took notice of me, if you know what I mean, like you just said there, acceptance, someone just actually noticed that. I asked me if I was all right. Because that day, particularly, I got back, I was arguing with God all the way, because that's the sort of weird things I used to do. And I sat there with my mate in the shoebox, the key ring, the little white orange alien. And because I weren't allowed a dorky, they'd all gone to the nans. And I had to wait two hours soaking wet in the bin shed. You know, they used to have bin sheds at the front of the houses. So I was sitting in there talking to my alien friend, still arguing with God about the reason why, why can't I have a jacket? Everyone else has got one. <laughs> so, but yeah, the acceptance of him was, you know what I mean? He actually realised a couple of things. And I, that's things that I still remember now at 43 years old. I can't forget it. Probably gave you the foundation of um, who you are now. Um, which we'll talk about later. But yeah. so what happened after that, Tell? So from that, I went to, to you know, done the usual things. I've, I've got a, an apprentice builder with a friend of a friend, done quite well that, quite enjoyed, you know, like just being around people. I think, you know, the banter, you know, yourself on the, on the, mm. the banter of it was a bit like now I found sort of a purpose or, or a life. And from that, I started... Uh, Try my hand at other di- loads of different things. I, I had a van. I was a man in a van. My dad was for this company, and um, I got in with him. And f- cut a very long story short. From being a man in a van, we sort of I got on with an area manager and ended up being offered my own depot with a f- with the funding of this palletized company, palletized freight company. A man from like that was at twenty one, so or 22. So from that age there, all of a sudden I had my own depot. Well, I had two depots. I started off with one and I had two from nothing to having all my mates on the council estate working for me, all cash in hand because everyone was on the dole. I couldn't get anyone. I didn't even know how to employ someone normal. I used to go, do you want to work? Well, mate, I've got to collect me UB40 next week. Do you know what I mean? I was like, well, you know, I'll pay you cash in hand. That was when the good old days. I know it's not, I'm not proud to say it, but that is exactly what happened. I can't lie. I I would be, be honest. Next thing, I've got my mate on tag working there. Everyone's working there. They're doing all the delivery. Like my mate's on tag doing a delivery to Wormwood Scrubs. We used to deliver the biscuits there on palletized freight. That's that's how it was comical times. But on the on the good point of that, all of a sudden, we, I was turning over like three million pound a year. I over. So the profits was unbelievable. And I I, I bought Chris Evans's Ferrari that he bought for Billy Piper. Put a thousand red roses in it. The three sixty Medina. I was driving around the council estate doing fifty grand's worth of damage over the speed bumps in Ferraris uh, on, you know, and drinking in the Greenwood, you know, you know what I mean? People were like, it was unbelievable what we were doing. And everyone that was worked for me was getting looked after. We had a speedboat down in Rye that we used to go out jet skis. Like the, the area managers used to come up, yeah, this is how council state ghetto we was. They used to come up for big meetings about tackling other areas. And we'd be on the sand dunes on the quads, come back all messy and sand in our air and all that. Like you're an hour late. So sorry, mate, that's how ghetto, <laughs> that's how ghetto we was. But 
Yeah, from, from that was like, they were good times. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I spent all the money. I brought pubs, partied. I was drinking for days on end. I was, well, I was on the cocaine. I was doing whatever was whatever was happening at the time. I was partying. Do you know what I mean? I was paying for expensive bands to come down to a pub in South Harrow. That's how bad it was. You know what I mean? Paying thousands of pounds. Who do we have down there? Like uh, the song Imagination. Is it Ron? No, Kenny Thomas. Not Kenny Thomas. We paid this guy thousands anyway. And he was like, right, Deaver. He wanted a a room with lights, you know, like a changing room and all that. We was just a pub. Yeah. And he's never, ever performed in a pub, but we paid this guy about six grand or whatever it was to come and perform. Filled up the pub with all the council state people. It was an unbelievable night that was. But, I suppose uh, it's such a contrast to what, what you had before though, wasn't it? Yeah, from nothing to like yeah. being able to have anything you wanted. Yeah. But I was never going to be able to hang on to it though, because like I've never, I've never, I, I was a kid that never had nothing. So if you give me everything, then I want it, then I could have yeah. it. You know what I mean? Like that Ferrari, I literally... As mad as it sounds, I went to Casa Rosso in Park Royal and I bought it cash. And and the French guy, when I went in there, I'm in my work clothes, transport clothes. He said to me, uh, I don't think, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm looking to buy one of these Ferraris. Because I didn't buy the 360 first. I bought that second. I bought a 355 first, Spider. And he's uh, this this French guy said, no, I don't think you, you want it. other car garage next door. I went, no, I want to buy a Ferrari. And I had, a man, I had like the satchel with me, like full of half the money. Because I used to have to pay everyone in cash every week. I pay out, to pull out like forty grand in cash out of the bank in that west to pay all my wager bills, and then tuck away like fifteen grand myself every time. And he, uh, in the end, I called, I said, "Can I speak to the manager?" The manager came out, and I showed him my money, and he, the French guy, had to make me a coffee and deliver my second car down to Rye Sussex for me. But it was amazing when you walk in there as a kid with all tattoos, gold. Yeah. They didn't want to know you, but yeah, I brought that cash. A bit like the scene in um, Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts. That's it. Yeah. They looked you up and down and thought, what's he want? Is he here to clean the toilet or something? And you had a, a satchel full of pound notes. Yeah, I had 74 grand in it, yeah, to buy a, to buy a car. And uh, Julie Roberts was a lot more prettier than me, though. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your drinking like in those days, though? If you had all this money and you was one of the lads and Ferraris and pubs and that, what was that like? Yeah, man. Well, it's like, you, you imagine I was suppressed for so long, Dave, that, I, you know, like, like I said, I was only really had loneliness and, you know, Orange Alien got the boot at this point because I've got a few quiz and I thought, hang on, I've got some real people now. So he got the boot. And um, yeah, I, I was, yeah, I brought pubs and that. So I, I was partying and I was partying hard. And I'm talking like from, I never really used to do drugs as a kid, to be fair, but then I found cocaine then as well, you know, like people, oh, try a bit of that. That was it then, wasn't it? You know, like I was out for three days, benders, drinking suicidal for two days afterwards do you know what i mean and uh yeah i probably i i was drinking partying womanizing unbelievable well i ended up with kids from all different relationships from a from coming from a broken home myself so i never wished to do i ended up doing i ended up repeating the process myself through partying though you know because i, I literally could have anything i was pulling up in, it don't matter if you was the ugliest geezer in the world when you're pulling up in ferraris and you're just taking a piss basically but you know like there's there's a lot of people that warm to that whether it's real or fake so you could you could be sleeping with girls all the time you could be you'd have loads of fake friends hundreds mm -hmm. of fake friends you know what i mean any mate you wanted i also had a friend from a boy band at the time who surrounded himself with women so he'd call me because i'd pull up take him to the best parties in the ferrari and all that because he even though he's in a boy band they didn't really have big money so i had his um reputation or his fame should i say but i had the money so it looked like I was his man. I just roll with him to footballers' parties and whatnot. And they'd be like, well, I'm talking about the car. And that was it. Yeah. So it was on big set. And 
he had a lot of drugs in them days, Dave, as well, obviously, that went hand in hand with it. You know, that's, our, that's my era. So then what happened after that? After all these riches and the party lifestyle? So after that, I literally, what did I do after that? So from there, I sort of, I lost the business in the end through like partying and I weren't really concentrating. So they wanted to pull, because there was never, there was only like a year at a time contract. I sort of knew they, they weren't going to, well, I'll tell you this story as well, because it's, I'll wrap this up as, as the child of things. So from, from the transport company that I worked for, or the franchise, they said to me, an insider said, look, they're going to pull the plug on you. So in a week's time, you're not getting no, and they used to pay you every three months. They said, you're not getting no trunker coming, no night trunker with your deliveries to both depots because they're, they're winding up the company. So you're not, for the, for the last three months, because they left it right to that time when the check was due. So we was about 60K waiting to come in. Maybe a bit more, I can't remember. I think it was about 64K, something like that. And so I was heads up that it weren't coming. So, and I only tell you this story not out of um, showing off because it's, it's it's not a show of story, but it's ultimately just to show you my mindset. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That you wouldn't get one over on me. And they sent the night trunkers for the last delivery and I didn't send on, all the lorries were leased by this company on my behalf. So it cost them like thousands of pounds a week. So what I did was, I took the lorries. Uh, no, the night I took all the freight on my lorries. I delivered it to a shoreguard company, uh, you know, where you store it, a storage company. And I part, I hid all the lorries, parked them up. Now, uh, three days later, we're not trading. They, they're ringing us. Where's all the deliveries? No, we're getting all these complaints. The deliveries ain't going out. I said, when you pay the money, then we're we'll do the deliveries. Where's the lorries? I said, well, the lorries, you can have the keys to them and the location once you pay your your debt. So we went all the way up to the main office, two hours drive. We're sitting there and it was all at loggerheads around. And I'm bearing in mind, I'm sitting there. These are big top wigs. We're me and my business partner, my two workers. We're just council estate kids and we're young. Do you know what I mean? They're looking at us a bit like, what are these idiots? But we had them a bit <laughs> short and curly. And uh, for the privilege of it, they said, um, we are this meeting. We had this meeting. They sent over, I think, 54,000 or whatever. Now tell us where we said, right, the keys are there, lorries are there. And then we left the building halfway on the way back because they were laughing that they still done us for two grand. So, and, and bearing in mind, I nearly, because I had subcontractors as well, and the one thing I was never going to do is let people down in life because I always believed in my own word. And I was going to make sure they got paid because without me getting that money, because I'd spend thriftly all the way through, I was living such a high lifestyle that I would never have been able to pay. And I'm talking guys that come from Kent to work for me in Rye, and he had two kids on his own, and there's no way I'm going to let these people down. Do you know what I mean? That was that's the full st- first and foremost of it, and um, yeah, on the way back they said, "Oh, yeah, we found the lorries last night, but there's no goods." And I said, "Yeah, well, you took me for ten grand, and we took them for like sixty grand of goods." So for next week, we're set all through Norfolk in the pubs and that we were selling all the goods like plasma TV, bottles <laughs> <laughs> of scotch. I know it's a, it's a funny story. I know it sounds so wrong, but if you if you really understood how a big company tried to yeah. take down not myself personally because I was I was earning money, but it would have had a knock-on effect to so many people that, like my people, the working-class people, and that's one thing I've always been protected of. Well, not everyone agree, but I, I think fair play to you, Tell, because, you know, being a man of your word in life is so important. Yeah. So you. after that, when did you decide you wanted to move? So from there, I uh, I went back into the building game. My mum was uh, going to sell her house because by this time as well like i've sort of built up a relationship with my mum and dad again now do you know what i mean i've, I've sort of i was 
living on my own from 15. So I'm back working now. My mum thinking about moving to Devon and I'm think, and she said to me, why don't you get yourself on a property ladder and buy my house? So this is like our childhood house now. So I thought, yeah, it's not a bad idea. So I didn't even know, you know, like if I could get a mortgage, but we went through the scenario, got had a mortgage advisor, got it all done. I brought out, she gave me a house cheaper. She moved off to Brixham in Devon. And so I had her house for a year. And I loft converted it because I was really into, I had all the building friends around. So we'd all done everything, made the out. And then all of a sudden property boomed. I don't know if you remember, like it was, it went from nothing to like, I brought it for 90 grand. Next thing, like everything's selling for like 200 grand. So I cashed it in at 210, I think, or maybe more than that. I can't even remember now. This was in um, beginning of 2007. And I thought, what will I do now? And I just met my missus at the time and I thought, she said, well, let's move away then. It'd be nice to get away. And so, so I thought, yeah, I like to be by the sea. Because when I was in Rye and I had the speedboat and that, I thought, yeah, that's, I've got to get back to that. I love that. So we thought, all right, let's go down there. So we went down there, had a look about, sold my house, found another house down there in Paynton. So I looked in Brixham, looked in Torquay, really like the part of Paynton I was like, it was on a hill, a nice little private road with palm trees. I say private, it wasn't private, but it looked private. And the views from this house, like in the back bedroom, was across you could see down the mountain you know what i mean you could see the sea and that and i thought oh, that that will do it just felt right so we brought that i've still had i think i only put so much down yeah. had a mortgage and then um that was it then so we was off for our new life so we went off down there and not, we didn't know what we was going to do she was a, a dental nurse at the time no i think she worked at playboy tv she was to do with the editing of that and then yeah because dental nurse she was later so we went down there Thought, yeah, we find jobs, everything else. So we was there seven months. Good times, really. You know, we used to go sea fishing with my uncle, go around my mum's and that. It was just like a new new life, you know. I was going jet skiing every day. I bought a jet ski as soon as I got there. I was out every day on that. Brilliant, that was. But we couldn't find work down there, you know. Like, it's, it's, it's quite amazing down there because you, if one of you went for a job, about 50 other people went for that job. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a smart move as, as unless you've got a really niche trade, you know what I mean? I weren't, I couldn't be a builder, I was, I was loads of trades, but master of none, if you know what I mean. So I couldn't stick do one thing. So I was talking to my uncle down there because he moved down there just before us, probably a couple of months before us, my mum's brother, Vince. And he said uh, he was a landscaper. So I said, why don't we do something together? He went, yeah, I'm up for that. So we used to, like, uh, like I said, go sea fishing together, play online on the PlayStation and whatnot together, some war games. And uh, what I didn't realise for it, it was a family secret from my auntie and him that he was struggling with mental health issues. This is one thing we never knew until later on. And um, so he was off his meds and he was having psychotic moments. And I sort of should have picked up on it, but because I, I, I'm just a cheeky chappy myself, I just think oh, maybe some people get a bit paranoid. But when we used to be sea fishing, and he's teaching me to sea fish because I've never fished in my life. And uh, he used to pull out this little book and he goes, yeah, do you recognise that? When we're just sitting there fishing, calm at sea, you know, off the bank, not on the boats and that. And he said... Uh, these carriage, I think they're London ones, they're following me. I say, nah, I don't know what you're on about. I said, I think you're just overthinking things, Vincent. Like, this is all in your head, mate. Who's going to follow you from London? Not like you're a bloody gangster or something. You're a landscape gardener. Unless you rip someone off. And he's never done that in his life. And he said, uh, nah, I just, I just thought I'd ask. Because it's like, you keep going back and forward to London. And these carriage keep turning up here in my road. <laughs> and I thought, mate, man, I, can't, I don't know. These were, these were like a few moments like this, you know what I mean? Then and then one night leading up to uh, probably a couple of weeks before the event, me and the missus were sitting. Our house was reverse level, so when you pull up on the drive, you go in. You've got the integral garage that goes through to the kitchen. You've got the kitchen diner and the hallway, and upstairs to two bedrooms. Was it three bedrooms? Two or three bedrooms upstairs. Downstairs to a big lounge. 
and because uh, it was on a hill. Uh, so if you imagine that, and we got a gate at the side and all that, uh, one night we're sitting there and he was knocking on the door a couple of weeks before this window, and we didn't realise he was knocking at the door. And he don't ring you or nothing because I don't think he had his phone. He's jumped the fence and everything. He's fucking peering through the back doors. We watched him jump out. Shoot, me and her jumped out of our skin. And he thought it was highly hilarious. You know what I mean? But mm. I just thought, again, you know, like I'd find something like that quite funny if someone, you know what I mean? So again, I didn't really look nothing into it. But I think he was trying to catch us out to see mm. what he was up to or whatever if we we're aspiring against him. But like p- paranoid. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, you know, like the way there's a joke in there that when someone does it jokingly and there's a way that someone, you know, it was totally different the way he done it sort of thing. Although, again, I didn't really pick up on it then, even though we spoke, and my missus was saying from that night, um, something a bit funny about Vince, you know what I mean? I was like, nah, he's all right. It's just, you know what I mean? A bit paranoid here and there or whatever. She said, yeah, but he does some weird things. And I was like, but she still swears to this day. She picked up on it. I didn't. So fast forward now, October 14th. We've been in Devon like seven months now after buying, doing the big move and living life. And bearing in mind, I've gone out with my uncle and auntie loads of times. We've gone for meals together. Like, I'm very close to my uncle. When I was a kid, my cousin he used to have us over his house or his flat in Harefield. And he used to do things with us like, you know, play Monopoly all night and actually spend a bit of time with us. So he was someone I quite held, again, someone that showed me time and affection mm-hmm. that I held quite highly in a way. Although we lost contact for a good few years in my older days or whatever yes october 14th 2007 he's come in i'm sitting at my dining table reading an auto trader the missus cooking a sunday roast i'm looking to buy this tipper truck for mine and his business we spoke about landscape gardening and um she's gone out to walk the dog he's 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 i made him a cup of tea and that and he's coming out of all these things like he looked a little bit like a man that was possessed this day like his hair's all over the place do you know what i mean you know like a troubled man and he was quizzing me about a package that I had on a side that I ordered something off of eBay or whatever it was, or the missus did. It was from Essex and his ex-missus from Essex. And he said, are you conspiring with so-and-so? And I said, mate, I don't know. It's a letter from Essex, you know, because that's the way I would say it to anyone. And not understanding mental health, how can you answer it in any other way? And uh, all these mad thoughts he was coming. Well, someone's been coming in my house and messing around with my paperwork. I said, who's going to come in your house and mess around with your paperwork? Well, I've just, you're not telling anyone where I am who cares where you, who you are and where you are? Like, I, I really didn't, you know, understand it or apprehend it. And he, um, from there, calmed down a bit. Because I think there's a lot more said, but it was so long ago now. I can't remember everything that was said in that build-up. Um, the missus come back from walking the dog now. He's no longer getting anywhere with me because every time he's saying, I'm just shutting him down. You know what I mean? Saying, so, no, Vince, it's all in your head. Just let it go, mate. I, I think I think it's time you go now. Do you know what I mean? And he said to me, oh, all right, yeah, I apologise. He said, uh, I'll tell you what, though, I've got last week's, uh, auto trader and I said that's right because there's one here in Trago Mills I'm going to go up there and have a look in a bit after dinner and he said to me um, yeah well, let me get last week so there's a couple in there you might want to see and I thought all right then so he's gone out the door shut the door to the kitchen and you got to walk down the hallway out the front door and he said I shut the door because of the dog and the dog did used to run away so we went all right and me and the missus looked at each other rolled our eyes thought Jesus what's the matter with this guy today you know what I mean he's on one next thing shit man he come in slammed the door he's got a petrol can red jerry can no lid on it and a disposable yellow lighter in his in his right hand and now he's come back even more possessed you know what I mean like the the whites of his eyes have gone grey I can't even explain like you know like you're just sitting there and I'm sitting at the table with an auto trader in my hand a hoodie I'm waiting to go out He's pouring petrol over his own head now, standing next to the table, telling me that he's looking for answers. Answers that I can't answer. And he said, I know it's to do with you lot and all that, and I'm going to kill whoever it is. And today, I'm going to take you all with me and all this and that. And he's, uh... But at this point, I still don't believe he's actually going to do that. I think this is a cry for help, maybe. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's naive of myself. I don't know. 
I swear, no way this guy's going to do this. And then I'm arguing with him in his fact, saying to him, Vince, you, you are totally effing mad, mate. This is all in your head. You know what I mean? And the only person who's going to end up dead today is going to be you. You know, like, because you're doing some madness. He threw some petrol then over the table that splashed up me. And she's gone to go out the integral door because she's sitting by the... I'm going to let the dog out. He said, you ain't effing going nowhere. And he said, and you... It's definitely sad to do with you and all. And he went to go for her then, whether he's going to throw petrol or, or what, I don't know. So I've had to step up. I grabbed him. We're both in a fight. Bearing in mind, there's petrol on the floor. He's pulled it over his own head. I've got wood floor in my kitchen diner. And we're now wrestling, fighting. But he slipped. And, and bearing in mind, he was quite a stocky guy as well. So lucky enough, I'd say lucky. But none of it was lucky. But it, it was lucky for me that he slipped on the petrol. So I fell on him. But as I slipped on him, he, was, he knew that she had already got out because I said to her, fucking run. So she's gone out the door. I heard the door sort of shut or make a noise. He smiled. And he's trying to spark this lighter. The lighter's not sparking, uh, not lighting, but on the, about the third or fourth spark. And he's grinning at me as, do, as he's doing this. It sparks and it's like a bomb. I can't even explain it. I've never seen anything like that in my life. I've seen someone set fire to petrol when you're young, but never, ever. It was like a fireball that was like sank out of a movie. It was unbelievable. But in my house, literally, I couldn't see through the fire and I'm breathing in fire and smoke. So you can't breathe because it's burning your lungs. Everything's burning now. And the only thing I could see, my, my patio doors up there was a set of patio doors with a metal rail. There was no balcony because I'm on the first floor. So all I could see was a ray of light coming through as I'm trying to get out. So as I'm trying to get out, I'm trying to drag him with me because I still got hold of him because I don't know what he's situated. But... There's chairs, tables, everything in the way now where I've kicked off the chair. You know what I mean? The chair behind me. It was quite a tight gap anyway. I'm trying to overcome all that to get to the light. In the end, I've had to let go of whatever I'm trying to do. I've jumped the balcony because it's so intense. Let myself, I've, I've jumped, I say the balcony, the rail. I've jumped that, hit the deck, roll it, roll it on my decking, trying to pull off my top because I'm on fire. Pulled my hoodie off, pulled my T-shirt off. I'm literally, I'd added just tracksuit bottoms on that were like a shell suit material. I've literally got a waistband left of that, my socks, my trainers, and my pants, because everything that's burnt away, it's melted, like most of it's melted to different parts of my legs and that. All my hair's gone, because I used to have like, you know, style my hair or whatever, my eyebrows, hair, everything's gone. I've hit the deck and pulled all that off, looked up, I can hear him like moaning and groaning sort of thing, because it must have been intense, because it was intense for them few, for that short amount of time I was in it. So I've run back up through the house, through the bottom, uh, through the living room, because obviously our patio doors were open downstairs. Back upstairs, see the kitchen door shut, ran out the front, the garage doors open, because I wanted to check the missus got out. And I couldn't find her, so I ran next door to our neighbour's house, and um, she's in there, and she's like, oh my God, what the fuck did he just do? Like, what happened to you? What's going on? I said, I don't know, I just need water, and I'll splash some water in my face. At this point, I didn't actually feel that bad. I just felt like a, like a flash burn sort of thing. I can't, well, not that I've ever had a flash burn, but... When I looked in the mirror, I just didn't have hair or eyebrows. So I splashed water in my face. I was a bit red. And um, next thing you could hear the house sizzling, frizzling and all that. And she's got two kids. I think her name was Karen. I said, come, we need to get out with the kids and all that. In case of the houses blow up. Because I'm, we still got the dinner on, so the gas is on everything in our house. So we come out the front. I've had to sit down now on the curb outside my house, opposite the road, looking at my house, knowing that he hasn't come out. And there's all, now all of a sudden the whole neighbourhood's coming out because it was just like quite quiet road. And um, a neighbour, we told him about the gas. He's gone out and turned the gas on the outside off. And then one of the neighbours was a nurse and put wet towels around me and all that. And then when we're sitting there, I'm thinking he ain't come out, but I know she's all right. 
I was looking at my skin. My skin was dripping off my fingers and my ears. Like I was trying to wipe my face and skin was coming off. It was like internally burning. Like it's like a scene out of Robocop, you know, he drops in the acid. And um, then I started to feel a bit weird. Then I thought, oh, you know, like the little anxiety starts kicking in thinking, well, shit, this ain't normal. You know what I mean? And I, and I was a little bit in sh- starting to feel a bit cold. And then the ambulance came and everything else. They put me in the ambulance. They shot me with morphine. Then I sort of blanked out then. I remember my missus saying, I love you, I'll see you soon. She got she was in a white white boiler suit when the police were taking her away. And then uh, they rushed me to Torquay Hospital. Then I got to Torquay Hospital and all I remember was my dad was there because my dad was staying down with us at the time, but he was working, I think doing a part-time job or something. And he was there, oh, he was the only one there I could hear because they, they had me in all these big tents, like in a bed, but with a big tent over me and everything. Everyone was rushing around. That's all I remember is it was mayhem, but it was all nurses around me. And I was like, my body was shaking it. I couldn't stop my body from convulsing on its own, on the shock. And um, yeah, I just said to my dad, tell me kids I love them because I kept seeing the light myself. You know, when they say you see the light, I know it sounds cliche, but I kept like, even with your eyes open, I could just see pure white. And I just thought, man, and all these nurses running around, I knew, I just knew I weren't going to, or felt I weren't going to make it. And then I don't remember nothing from there where they rushed me off to, they tried to get a helicopter, but couldn't get one because it was the end of the summer. I think so busy. They rushed me in a hospital uh, ambulance to the Bristol French A hospital, which was, I think an hour and a half, two hours away. And next thing I remember being in the hospital, but I couldn't see. And I could hear loads of people around me talking to me. So I was talking to them. I thought I was all right. But I'd swollen up, like my head was five times its size from the internal burning and the water retention of the burns and my body. They People said they came in to see me and walked straight past me. Didn't I was unrecognisable. I looked about 22 stone. And um, from there, I, I don't really remember too much because they had to put me in a drug-induced coma and work on my skin, like skin grafts, taking skin from my thighs, rebuilding my arms because I'd got 48% burns. I can't remember what they're called now, but proper deep burns. And they had to rebuild a lot of me, like my neck, my, my hands were burnt, my face was badly burnt. But there's only so much they could skin graft, which was mainly my forearms, probably from the hoodie burning me and my neck from the flames going up. And uh, that's where my, my my road to recovery really started, I guess, because from from there, I was a drug induced coma for, I think, up to six weeks, I think. Yeah, six weeks. And then um, I just remember waking up out of the coma just staring, I was, I was in ICU and I couldn't move because I haven't walked. So like, and I'm wired up to every machine because I caught every superbug whilst I was asleep. A lot of things went on whilst I was asleep that I don't actually remember. But as in, uh, I died twice, or they fed, read, not that I died, but they read my final rights twice that I weren't going to make it basically, that it's gonna, they're going to have to turn everything off. So everyone had to get called up, go to the chapel arrest and all write in the book for me and everything else. And it was only the second time he'd done it and my sister kicked the priest out. She told him basically, like she said, you know, she's not religious, but I'd never swear at priests in my life. I told him to f off out of the room because he was trying to write me off. And it was only a, an old army surgeon that was there, who was my surgeon at the time, Bristol French. They decided to turn me on my front because I had MRSA, C diff, pneumonia, and it was the pneumonia that was with on top of the burns and the smoke, it the shadow on the lungs of the smoke inhalation. He turned me on my front which made me survive because he used the back of my lungs to breathe. So that, that pulled me through it. A bit like what they do with the COVID now. That's what they've been doing with the COVID patients. So that, that, that pulled me through that. And then waking up from that, I think they woke me up a few days before. That's when they passed me a mirror in that, man. And I was like, the, the, I just write a, a, a guy that was always at the end of the bed. So for the three days, or seen forever, it was only probably a few days. He was always reading this book 
because I couldn't do anything because my hands were in splints. I couldn't talk because they had a tracheostomy in me. They had to release the balloon for me to talk, so I had to point at letters. So all I could do is literally sit there, watch a big clock at the end of my bed, because now I've got insomnia because I've been asleep for six weeks. So I'm just counting the time on this clock, seeing people coming and going, pointing at letters, getting frustrated that I can't talk and can't do anything for myself, and watching this male nurse reading bloody, of all things, Red Hot Chili Peppers lead singer book. I must have looked at that guy on that cover for how many times over the weeks. And he and he, he was talking to me and he said to me, um, do you want to like see yourself in the mirror? And I nodded and he passed me a mirror, man. It's like from, I'm not saying I was a pretty boy. I was just happy in my own skin at 28 years old. You know what I mean? Up until this point, because I was 28 when this happened. And I, and a monster looked back at me. It was like a scene out of a Freddy Cougar movie or something. That's the only way I can explain it. And then, And I just thought, that's a whole new thing. How am I going to live? Do you know what I mean? How can I live looking like that? And I'm thinking this while not being able to talk, not being able to move, can't even walk out for a bit of fresh air. Literally in this position that you're in, you're stuck in. Now you've got to deal with whatever it is. No matter what your emotions are, this is where you're at. Then what, a day or two later than that, I wake up again out of my sleep. I've got my sister and my ex there. And I'm thinking, that's weird. Because like, obviously I know I've got my missus and that. I'm thinking, why are they here? But they're both crying at the end of my bed. And I thought, oh, man, I'm not going to make it now. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a weird enough that she's here and they're all crying. And um, they said to me, I've got something to tell you. And I said, oh, all right, go on in. And I just thought, I felt pretty, you know what I mean? I, I, I've been asleep in that, but I didn't feel like I was on my way out just yet. And then, um, yeah, and then they said to me that I lost my daughter. She had died about four days ago. But they, they, they the nurses and that advised my family to bar the ex from the hospital from telling me because I was in such a bad way, I wouldn't have pulled through if I'd have had any bad news the minute I'd woke up. It was bad enough them telling me then, but the family wanted to tell me. And uh, that I can't explain, Dave, because to sit there in that position, I'm trying to deal with being disfigured. I'm trying to deal with like my uncle trying to kill me in my own house and not being able to do anything for myself right now. Don't even know what's going on, what I can and can't do anymore. I'm being fed through a tube. And then now they're telling me this. Now I can't even grieve. Do you know what I mean? For something, I can forget about all my problems now, but I can't grieve because I can't even go, I can't just have a minute to myself, go and walk, you know, like a what you'd want to do. Do you know what I mean? So what they did do, this particular nurse who was, like I said to you with the Chili Peppers book, uh, sorry, because I can never remember their names. It's so long ago, man, but I have to just describe by memories of what I remember. And it, he said, listen, let's take him on it because also I was addicted to the oxygen machines for whatever reason or I needed it because of my luck, because of my um, lungs. They, he, he said, I think we should wheel him outside, the three of us, put him in a wheelchair, take him outside for the first time. They took me outside. I'll never forget it. Like, I thought I'd missed Christmas and everything. It was Christmas decorations. Everywhere I thought, Christmas has come and gone. And I filmed like I was there forever. They wheeled me outside in this hotel. It's like an old army hotel, you know, like where I was staying. But I just remember coming out for the first time, so in that fresh air, although I've just been told the worst thing in the world and I'm trying to deal with a lot of things, I never, I never forget the smell of fresh air. Like I've never smelt it like I smelt it before. And it was like a misty night that rang in my face. It's like pure heaven. Do you know what I mean? Coming out from it and just that little escape. But now I'm now I'm sort of like banging trouble now because now I'm going wheeling back to the bed. And now I've got to deal with all of this. And to be honest, it's the way they're injecting me up, Dave, I can't really remember. I remember getting the bad news and I remember smelling that fresh air and everything else. Do you know what I mean? But then every day now, I can't, I've, I'm learning to walk crying my eyes out as a man because they're standing me up. I'm dizzy. My legs ain't working. 
I'm literally getting back in bed, failing, like crying my eyes out. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's like, oh, don't be upset. But I just, I, I can't even walk. Do you get what I mean? You know, like as, as a 28, you've walked for 28 years. Now you can't, you've got to learn to walk again. And that's, and it ain't, it's hard. I, I, people that's been in a position would understand if you've been laid up on your muscles, because I deteriorated down from a 12 stone, 11 and a half, 12 stone average man. I went down to six stone just from being in the hospital bed, laid up for six weeks. That's all it was. And obviously not eating, being fed through a tube. That it's a, it's a hard thing to explain that, but I think it's an important thing because I think a lot of people must go through that and will understand that, that that's that's a whole nother battle in itself. You know what I mean? There's all these battles going on with me right now, but that, that was one of my things that amazed me the most of how strong you have to be to try and push through that. Like, cause it's, it really rips you apart as a man or as a human being, should I say, not even as a man. So now, now I'm going through my therapy. They're talking about like, obviously weaning me off the oxygen because now I've got a few more. I've been told, you know, this is maybe like a week later. Now I'm doing all these things, grieving, still in ICU. They've, they've now put me in a room now on my own. So I've come out of ICU. You know what I mean, so one achievement, I'm out of that. I'm doing my physio. I'm, um, I've still got all the machines going on because also at that point, you know, from everything, I, I seem to remember them dropping me off the bed, but I had a catheter in my bum. And whatever happened, they were changing the bed. They rolled me too much or I fell to one side. They ripped the catheter and then I had to go back in for more surgery because they ripped a, a main artery in my bum. So fucking the whole, like, the, it was like a, blood scene in the bed you know what I mean so I'm on my way to trying to get myself back to me and all of this I've got a funeral now like there's just before Christmas and I'm trying to gear up I'm trying to find the strength to like there's no way I haven't got to say goodbye because that's one thing you're dealing with with grief there's the grieving and then there's never getting that opportunity to say goodbye do you know what I mean never you, you, you can't get back them last moments so I don't remember her visiting me because I was in a drug induced coma but my ex brought them up to visit me but ultimately now I'm hating my uncle even more now. Like I know that he hasn't survived because they've told me, but now you've took something from me that's so important. You know what I mean? Take my looks and take whatever else, but you took something that, that I can never ever get back now. And um, so I'm trying to get better for this, but everything was a setback. Every time was a setback. They released me from hospital. I've got, I've been in there so long. I'm having panic attacks. I'm having, they've got me off the morphine. So I'm having all the itches like all the skin crawlers from the morphine, you know, like that's why when people say they've been on heroin and now I understand when they say it's making me itch, I truly understand some addictions, believe you me. And the, one of my biggest addictions, what I never knew was that powerful was oxygen. Ever addicted to that? My God, that's unbelievable. So how I got off of that, they said to me, he's going to have to have a nurse go with him to the funeral and they're going to have to take oxygen, mobile oxygen machines. Cause I, now I'm an outpatient, but I'm in and out. So, well, I've got two more days to go home because they said if I can drink a cow shake on my own, because I can't eat nothing. Everything tastes like paper. I can't eat chips because I've been chew fed for so long. But I've got this vision. I have to walk on a funeral. I have to be there for that. I'm not. I'm not being nursed. I'm not going in a wheelchair. So when the, when they nurses used to go out, my sister used to get the ump because she used to have to stay out there with me and stuff. And the missus, when they, when I was there, I used to take it off <gasps> till I couldn't breathe no more. I'm nearly passing out. That I'd put it back on again. So I, I weaned myself off of it. So that was first stage. I didn't have to have the gas bottles no more, which they believe they done, but I weaned it off myself. So I'm a home patient now. I've got a funeral coming up. I'm still in a wheelchair because walking was like a whole nother, whole nother thing. And obviously the hands, I couldn't I had to really learn to use my hands because they're in splints for so long in a certain position. My neck, I couldn't look up. I couldn't look sideways because they kept me face down with a tracheostomy. 
So now they're starting to take everything out. Now tracheostomy is out, so I can talk without the balloon. I've got the, the tube comes out. So now I've pretty much got nothing nothing on me. And it's the day of the funeral. And I'm uh, I'm an outpatient. We're still in Bristol. We've got, a, we've got a house just outside the hospital. I've come down for the funeral. My friends have all laid on the cars, but I've still got a wheelchair because I can, I can still just about walk. And I said to my friend, like, I, I, he said, he was a car dealer. He said, what cars do you want? I said, all black Range Rovers. So he laid on all these Range Rovers. And uh, I said, I'm driving. He said, no, there's no way you're driving. So you can't drive. You're not insured for one. And secondly, but I made such a scene about it that he just took every risk and said, you know what, fuck it, there you go. Just do what you've got to do, mate. But if you crash it, it is what it is. <laughs> so I drove it. I followed I followed the horse and cart. I got there and I walked for the first time that day from all the time when I was in hospital and everything else. It was my, I achieved without it. Without crutches as well, wasn't it? Yeah, without crutches, nothing. I, I, I walked for the first time, walked back to the car, drove the car back, went for the afterthought, but now I've got to go back up. I'm still an outpatient, so I've got physio on that next morning. But this, for her, she gave me the strength, and I, you know, I, I had a goal. Should I say to to do her proud and myself proud? So that was that was. I, I, so that's why I truly believe setting goals, although not extremely fat one. But if you set goals and you have something to work towards, your mind can make you achieve the unachievable if you believe it enough. So after that, I mean, the tragedy of the fire is enough for anyone in their life. But to lose your daughter as well was just shocking. But do you think from that has helped you with the strength to recover from what happened to you? Yeah, I think because, you know, from that from that point, you know, I talk about that as an achievement because I've done that for her. But then moving forward, I think then it all hits you a bit later on because I'm still now I'm back in London. Now I'm getting out. But grief hits you for a long time and hits you when you least expect it. You know, like sometimes I'd be eating my dinner and start crying in my dinner because the emotions of grieving is just unexplainable. Do you know what I mean? Because there's certain things you think and I'm suffering PTSD now. I'm under a clinical psychiatrist because my head's just not right. Do you know what I mean? Because from a victim of mental health, I'm now became a sufferer of mental health. My anxiety is through the wall. I had a full-on pharmaceutical addiction with tamazepam and diazepam, so Valiums and sleeping pills, because my body clock was so messed up of being in there that I had to take pills to sleep because I couldn't sleep without them. I had to take pills for nerves and you know anxiety, which was the diazepam. And then you take more and more of them because you build a tolerance. So in the end, I was even buying them off of sites because the doctor wouldn't give me so many. And the doctors used to tell me, I don't want to keep giving them to you because you've got an addiction. And I thought that was kind of rich because you're the one that gave them to me all in the first place. You helped create my addiction. Now you want to monitor my addiction. Do you know what I mean? So I remember like, you know, obviously, like you said, yeah, the, the burns and, and the recovery was hard enough. Do you know what I mean? Without the grieving on top of it. So it, it just created so much more that you didn't know whether one day it's your PTSD, whether I'm grieving, whether, you know, like everything was the emotion. I can't even explain them emotions because you're right. It, it was too much at once. The grieving, like losing a child before yourself, yeah. it's just an unheard of thing, isn't it? It's just something that you, you take for granted. Your kid's always going to be there and, and bury you. You know what I mean? Not that you're going to be at their funeral. So that was a proper killer, really. So I had to do a lot of work with this psychiatrist, PTSD, Obviously, it's, it's quite a bad thing as well because I was having nightmares all the time. I couldn't really watch films with fire in it. Do you know, everything would take you back. I couldn't watch any sad films. I couldn't watch, like, even hospital programs, you know, like on TV, A&E or anything like that. Everything would trigger something. My anxiety was, that was probably a bad thing. That was that used to really, you know, I didn't want to leave the house. I became a recluse for probably a good two or three years. Didn't want to see anyone. Didn't want to go anywhere. 
And uh, from one night of playing a game of cards with friends and family, someone had a, a joint. And uh, again, I, I talk about it lightly, but it helps for one thing, but then not for another. If you know what I mean? At that time, I was so bad on pharmaceutical drugs. I said, let me have a bit of that. And they said, yeah, but you, you know, I don't think it's good for you. I said, no, no, I think, you know, I just wanted a release, you know, like this is the start of where you start looking for other releases, take your mind off of things. So I smoked this joint and man, I had the best night's sleep of my life. I laughed my bollocks off for about 20 minutes straight. I thought it's the funniest thing I've ever done. You know, like I haven't laughed in, I don't know how long because of all of this. I got the munchies because I didn't really have an appetite. So I ate, laughed and slept. I thought, this is the bollocks. Now I'm a stoner now because now I thought this is the new thing. I've given up all the pharmaceutical shit, get rid of all that. This is a new thing. And like I said, I know it's not the answer, but for me at that time, I, I've got to say it helped me. Yeah, in a way. Escape. Yeah, it was my escape. Yeah. And 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 the emotions that it gave me really did help. Yeah. All the things I weren't doing. So if you could have done that in moderation, maybe it would have helped. And you know what I'm saying? But I, I do believe that was better than the pharmaceutical drugs that was ruining my guts and whatever else. So yeah, I, that was my new addiction now. Now now I became a stoner. I was already a recluse up until that point, so I can't say how it made me reclusive, although people say it does. I built a gymnasium in my bedroom because they told me, you're never going to, you know, chances are your mouth's not going to move properly. Your legs will probably come back to normal in time because you've had skin grafts and that is going to be tight, you know what I mean, through your scars and whatnot. Your neck might not get full function. You've got to accept all of this. And uh, you might not never work again, You might, but you're certainly never going to box again or anything like that. So in my mad moments and my PTSD and my mental health journey now, the missus was working. Now she's a dental nurse assistant. I've built a whole gym in the living room now. So she's come back one day. I've got a boxing bag in there. I've got a rowing machine, multi-gym. She thought I'd totally lost the plot now. The whole living room, you know, you can only just about see the telly for a gym. Every day she's at work now, I'm hitting this bag till my hands are bleeding because they were so my nerves were so badly burnt that it was really sensitive just to touch them. I punch this thing till my knuckles bled every day until that came back. I laid off the end of the weight bench doing weights, stretching my neck every day till that came back. I stretched my mouth every day till that came back. And everything they told me that weren't cut, weren't, that may not come back, I've now got to defy it, David, in my mind. I've always defied everything anyway. If you tell me I can't do it, from a kid, it's always, that resilience has always been there. This is why I go back to saying about my childhood, because that built me for what I needed later on, because it built resilience in me. And every time they told me I couldn't have it, I couldn't do it, I went out and achieved it. And I still had that installed in me. Pure survival, mate. Yeah. Yeah, so cool. what about the boozing? Did that um, go alongside with the drugs? Yeah, so from smoke, when I say maybe 2013, something like that, I started going at me, mates again, they picked me up, do you want to come up the road? And I go, yeah, come out. Because now I'm starting to get out a bit, do you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm, my sleeping pattern's a bit better. And I'm still smoking joints, whatever, at this point. Not smoking them out, just when I'm indoors. I think it was my birthday for a surprise party for me, which I weren't happy about. Miss has done it. Me mate could come pick me up anyways me, me mate that laid on all the range rovers and he's a uh, he's someone who's so busy whenever you ring him he's just about to get a call back you know what i mean and all of a sudden he's turned up like i need you to come somewhere with me and i thought oh, all right then. and i was all excited because he was he one of them friends that excited me because wherever you go it was saying exciting and he uh he took me to my own surprise party which i weren't at but that was sort of like the start of it so then i'd be i was drinking that night and uh, a few friends started that so i was trying to get a bit of a social life back so i'd go out trying to i'd wear a baseball cap and golf gloves Look like Michael Jackson, like a white Michael Jackson, you know, <laughs> everywhere I went. And then, uh, yeah, so I started doing a bit of that. But I think drink started masking it a bit so I could go and have a few beers or, or get drunk. And 
like even me and the missus would go and have a few drinks sometimes and then uh now and again I'd have, I'd have maybe a little bit of cocaine again here and there do you know what I mean just because it was around you know what I mean it's still them sort of times it was a, it was about and all my lot of working class people you know you couldn't go in a pub in my areas about that just being around you know what I mean you'd only go in the toilet for a piss and go there's a cheap one in there for you and that's it you think oh yeah no, I, I, I shouldn't but you would you know what I mean <laughs> and then uh yeah so I think I was just masking everything then, Dave, because like I said, as you can imagine, with everything that was going on, it don't leave you, it's still in your head. So I was sort of trying to get a life back and probably trying to relive my youth a little bit, but through masking, because when you was drunk, the feeling of being drunk, you, you forgot about all your inhibitions, didn't you? You mm. forgot about all your problems. Now I could be who I used to be, a character, or my alter ego, or who I thought was funny. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, it was going, yeah, it's a right laugh. I think I was actually quite a right laugh, but I'm quite a laugh anyway, but I thought I needed drink to do it. Because I've got a good personality, but yeah, so I, I I done a lot of that. But what that actually led up to in the end was one night I was sitting in the working man's club with all my friends that I'd normally go and play football on a Friday, go and have a few afterwards. I really did have a few drinks this night, and I was sitting there with everyone. I should have really been happy, but then I thought I was having some depressive thoughts because uh, it was all covered. The drink was bringing back the the bad thoughts again. You know what I mean? All the bad memories, and uh, I thought I, I just thought fuck it. I don't. I, I actually don't want to be here no more because I just thought to myself, my daughter ain't here. I'm disfigured. I'm dealing with a lot of insecurities now because I think how am I going to hang on to my relationship when I look like fucking Freddy Krueger? How am I like nobody's going to take me? You know what I mean? I can't walk around without anyone going. Cool. What happened to you? And by this point, like now. I've put a tattoo on my face because I think I'm a warrior in my darkest times. You know what I mean? I think I'm like the Mike Tyson or whatever I was thinking at the time. And uh, being burnt with a tattoo on your face and a gold tooth and all that, you know, I just look, I, I don't know what I must look like to people. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm trying to do good things and everyone's judging me. And I just feel, man, like I just had enough. I don't, and, the, and the drink really pushed me to a darker stage of that. And that night, I generally, I was, I was thinking about driving into a tree and all that. And my me, me power sort of like, from back in the day, <laughs> was an old villain, and I shouldn't even say this really, but he had an old sawn off, and that's what I took in the car with me. I went and I went and got it from where it was, which didn't make people very unhappy about that. But it was saying that you know what I mean should never arise again. But I took it and 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 I texted one of my goodbyes, and I sat in another pub, got myself another drink, sitting there on my own in the car, and I was literally to just toying with it under my chin. It had one cartridge in it, and I was going to blow my own brains out because I totally had enough, totally had enough at that point, and then. Uh, they, my friends, who a couple of them turned up and uh, took it out of my hand. One went and threw it in the canal, got rid of it. And then all the police had come and all that because the family had figured out they'd told the family where I was. But my pals come there and actually saved me from doing years inside. And um, yeah, and saved my life. And then the police come and I, I've, I've never really been, being a counselor kid, I've never really had much love for the police because I was a bit of a rogue when I was young. But I just remember one police officer was actually genuine. You know, like a genuine guy that was like actually talking to me and just being genuine, saying like, you know, I know we're police officers and that. This is from South Arrow Police Station. And he said, generally always here, you know, like if you ever feel like this. And I'll never forget that, you know what I mean? For a policeman to be, I thought that was like, then they don't even exist anymore. But that was the one, that was a good one I took from the night. And from that night, I was sitting there. It's quite funny because we all ended up having a drink in the pub. In the same pub I was going to blow my brains out in. Like my me, me rich mate come up there, it's never got the time. <laughs> so all the people that all of a sudden, there's about 12, 12 of us there. And I was just quite happy to have a bit of company. You know what I mean? To think, like, who was actually there for me. So I guess from I'm going to do something, turn out to sort of be a cry for help. Because some friends that I thought, like, you don't really give a shit. Do you know what I mean? You're just hanging about for the because it's a sad story. But it was all there. And, uh, yeah, that's that's... 
that's what drinking done for me. So from that, I sort of decided to not drink on the head. I thought, if that's what it does to me, bring back all bad memories like that and drive me to that point, I'd selfishly take myself away from my loved ones and my other kids. Yeah. I mean, because it's a selfish act, which I believe. And for me, yeah, that's why I don't drink anymore. And I'm not, and it's not because I can't, it's just purely, but I just don't want all that bad shit in my mind. It brings back the memories and it haunts you, doesn't it? And uh, I, I hear you there, mate. I came home one night myself and I personally thought I was ruining everyone's lives. I'm better off dead. All these weird thoughts that I was having. And I was literally scurrying through all the drawers for tablets, anything, you know, to take because I was in this space of um, they're better off without me. And I couldn't find any. And I woke up in the morning on the floor thinking, my God, what, what would that have meant for everyone else around me if I'd have done that, you know? And that it's an awful place to be. But for you, is that where things changed for you after that? Yeah, because after that, I, I started to think to myself, you know, I've got to change my mindset here because my mindset's all wrong. Because, you know, like from I, I'm now living on the person of pity. You know what I mean? All this happened to me. Why did it happen to me? And and I'm holding on to all this luggage, should I say, and all these things rather than setting goals and trying to figure out an identity for myself of who am I now? This is, you know, why let something, what's changed me, hold me back? So I started to work on my own mindset and start thinking to myself, you know, I, I need to have goals and things that I can focus on and, and things that what I've always thrived on all my life is that you can't do that. So now I have to set my own goals. So I set goals as in that I wanted to do, I wanted to give back and help others because I thought if I'm if I've been through all this and I was laying in that position in my hospital bed, maybe it would have took another man, and I don't say this in a sexist way because I know there's burn surviving women and and women in their position, but I wanted to, me personally for me I wanted another man to be sitting by my hospital bed to have been where I'm at now, but to have been through the other side to where I am now. Do you get what I mean? And be sitting there just to tell me look. I was where you was laid up there. You know, maybe I didn't lose my daughter, but I'm going through all the emotions of you looking in that mirror and you trying to walk for the first time again and all the things they're telling you you can't, you may not be able to do. But I'm here saying to you that you may be able to do them. And I'm living proof because I've done it. And I'm just a man like you, no different. And and that's what I feel I needed at that time. Like a brotherhood, I need another man just to tell me that I understand. And, and that is what I took with me from it that I wanted to give back. So... And my psychiatrist, I was telling this to my psychiatrist and she obviously I was in a bad place and she sends it to her, give it time. You know, you're not, you wouldn't possibly be able to help anyone yet. You need to work on yourself. So that's what I did then. So I give up drinking, I give up weed. And I literally, I was doing all the things I've never done in my life for a man that, from a council state kid that would just eat any old crap or whatever. And I still eat crap. I'm not saying I don't, but starts taking a nuke of honey, you know, like looking into little alternative, holistical, natural and I would just work on my mindset, set goals as in it. Right. They're telling me I, I can't work with people because I'm in a bad, so I'm going to prove everyone wrong. I'm going, and then I set up, I'm going to set up my own charity. And I thought, how can I do this? So I spoke to my pals and I said, you need to have, like you said, goals. What do you want to do? I said, what do you want to achieve? And he said, I know a good thing. I run Tough Mudder once. You should maybe set that as your goal to inspire others. So I thought, right, let's do it. Let's do that. I'll, I'll train for that. And that was the thing. And I'm going to make it, I want to make a documentary to show someone from what, what you can come from and what you can achieve. Because why why just talk about it? I need to show it. I need to live it and show it. I need to be from where I was to, to completing that and visually show someone that it's possible rather than just a story is just a story. Do you know what I mean? So I'd done that. And then I, I was talking in alcohol groups because my mum 
done a woman's group, Alcohol Anonymous, uh, in Uxbridge, and they agreed to let me film and talk there. And I changed a lot of their lives. Now I sort of thought, you know, like, and I, I never wanted to work with women, bearing in mind. I thought, no, I just want another man. Then I thought, no, I'm not going to be the, I'm going to work with everyone. Because wh wherever I can make a difference and whoever's life it is, everybody needs it because I was lonely as a kid. I was alone in my road to recovery. But what I can do is make sure someone else ain't alone. And that was my that was my super strength. And then I went on to do other things. I've done a horse challenge, three days to do the people that say, you know, people fall off horses. Someone was just telling me about it, you know, and they don't ever get on horse again. And I thought, right, well, I've never ridden horse in my life, but I'm going to do that challenge. I've done that in three days with a Welsh national team. They've never seen a councillor to get a kid turn up, do the, the figure of eight in three days. Never rode horse in their life, but that changed people's lives. Kids that fell off a horse once and scared. But it went down so well. That's how I see my life doing. If whatever I did, I wanted to I wanted to visually show you it that was my thing I wonder how important that police officer was that day where he took the time out of his job role to sit and listen to you how that affected you later on that it gave you the feeling that you want to be there for others as well because that must have been a pivotal part for you as well. Yeah, well, you know, from what I told you about my childhood and everything else, I'm a man that really don't trust in many people. I, yeah. I don't have no expectations of people, should I say. Not that I don't trust in people. So everything's like a duck, walk off a duck's back to me. But things that you do remember, yeah, that day I sort of entrusted in, in humanity again, I guess, because a man in his role really and um, for like when you see all your friends up to no good and they're all getting carted off for, for the right reasons, but you think, oh, that's me, mate. Do you know what I mean? And uh, we'll, you know, maybe for, in the council state duck and dive when we're young. Do you know what I mean? And you think like you're just trained to not think they're compassionate people. But for him, and it wasn't like a major pinnacle, but it was just to show that the few words that he did say was powerful and genuine. Yeah. And and that's what I kind of, I like that in life still to this day. Because I've never had nothing. And like I said to you, I'll give you my story so you can understand my mindset is that I'm a very good reader of people. Yeah, I've had yeah. to be, I've had to be. So I know if someone's energy is good or not. And, yeah. and that's, when I do come across it and I meet people like it, I sort of hold on to it and it, and it and it makes my heart smile because I think that is a beautiful thing because there's not much of that in the world. You don't come across it very often. But every time it does, I could tell you, my brain's like a flicker pad. I could remember millions of situations of, of a good person. I mean, I I came across you probably a few months ago and... I watched your documentary and it gave me goosebumps, mate, because, you know, I was brought up in a rough area as well. And I, I had to live off my wits, Not, nothing like you where you were locked in a room and stuff, but I can relate to a lot of your childhood and my drinking escalated out of full control and it dominated my life. I, I become a recluse in myself with my drinking because I felt safe on my own. You know, I, I was I was let down by a lot of people in my life. And like you, I like to see the best in people, but I'm also quite streetwise as well. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot for me to sort of trust someone. So I can really, really relate to your story. I and mean, it's literally mind-blowing how so amazing, what a role model you are, Tell. Honestly, you're, you're just such a role model. And I know people listening to this podcast will agree with me that the way you've turned your life around with the tragedies you've had is just so impressive. And I think you're going to inspire a lot of people, whatever they're doing in their life to just think to themselves, right, I can do this now. 
nothing is impossible. There's a lot of people that are struggling with booze, drugs, whatever it is, gambling. And to hear your story is so, so inspirational. And I just feel so grateful that you've agreed to share it with me today. So I feel so humble around you and I, I want to thank you so much. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I was excited to do it with you, you know, like I said. Uh, and what I like about you, Dave, is the same thing. Is that I, I always knew that from when we first spoke that we both come from a similar upbringings because all roads to recoveries are the same. Or, or, uh, but we can always take something out of someone's life, how, no matter how small or how big. And I know probably from when I first met you, you probably the same. We both could have probably, well, I, I definitely, yeah. so I definitely could have went down a whole criminal life because it was just there. That was that I could have found a family in that, and and I did venture into some of it. I don't really have any regrets. The only thing I do, if I could change it, was obviously have my daughter here. That's mm-hmm. my biggest thing, but. If I didn't go down that road of, I, I probably wouldn't become the person I have, you know, through the through the bad times. And that's what I'd say. What you just said there for people that are struggling with things, this ain't it, you know. Like you know, some people just think this is it. It's not because you can be whatever you want to be, and it really is. I truly believe. Like I, I, my father-in-law is in addiction. He he he's, uh, owns DDA. Him and an American guy, and we talked a lot over the years. And I I truly believe. Like if look, I've done it. I've had pharmaceutical addictions, addiction, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I know everyone's journeys are different, but an addiction is an addiction. So whether you've got pharmaceutical addiction, a cannabis addiction, cocaine or drink addiction, it's all about our mindsets and just working on the problem and finding your identity of who you are. What do you want to be? Do you know what I mean? Do you want to be that this is it that you want to? You because we only get one life, Dave, as we all know, and that's what that's what I sort of thought is that. Although I'm, I I live to give back because that's my I like you said earlier. This is what I really enjoy doing. There's no better satisfaction. If I can help the next man or the next woman, no matter how small or how big, there's not a better feeling than that because I could never get that. So I'm fulfilling the gaps for if I can make a difference somewhere, and I, and I believe that that's what people need to sit. If you're sitting there at your lowest point, or you're masking a problem, or it's just generally an addiction or whatever, don't think that's it, man. Because if I thought that was it. I'd have blown my brains out that night and I wouldn't be here now to be helping anyone. And I think we're all loved by someone and we, and we should all in life aspire to be whatever, because you, you can do whatever you want to do. The only limitations is your own mind. Yeah. That's the truth. A hundred percent, mate. I relate to all that. And, you know, a lot of people know how I've turned things around and, you know, I get messages now by people and, and it blindsides me sometimes because they say, the fact you replied to my message two years ago made me stop drinking. And I don't even remember the message, but it was the fact that I acknowledged it by saying a few words like, you know, just be positive, you know, think where you could be in three months time, this could change your life. And then I carry on with my day and that has changed everything for them, but not just them, their families as well, you know, and their loved ones around them that they're all their lives will improve by just that one message, you know? So I absolutely hear you, mate. And for anyone listening to this, I urge them to watch your documentary on YouTube called Trial by Fire, right? Yeah, a Terry Dunnish story. And and you're rewriting your book as well. Yeah, we're rewriting the book. We're actually re-editing the um, documentary as well, purely because it's an hour and a half that's on yeah. YouTube. That's why it never yeah. made TV. So we're actually brought it down to 45 minutes, but you've seen it yourself. It's so powerful. It's so hard. To, it took us a year and a bit now to try and still have the impact because my main thing is not about being on TV. Don't get me wrong, but it's, I want it to get to the people and it's not from a self gain point of view. It's just purely because that is 
if I've never done anything else in my life, that will always be there to inspire someone else. And, and I know so many people that I've sent it to and, you know, like people that have reached out to me. And it's to me, that's the hardest thing. I don't know about you, but for me, so I feel so self-bloody, what do you call it? You know, we go, oh, well, have a watch of this. Because yes. it's Terry Dunnish story. You talk, They reach out to talk to me and I go, just have a watch. I think it might inspire you, but I'm never trying to plug myself. Yeah. But that's my tool. You, you're good at talking, though. You do what you do, who talks. I'm dyslexic, so my words come out back to front. So I, I tend, I'm not really a big talker. So I like to visually show you and I'm not a psychiatrist. So if I can just show you something, and that's why I always put people to it. So we're, we're bringing it down basically to, yeah, if we can get it onto even like, you know, a small channel somewhere. Because on the actual documentary, we won two of the best awards, the Double Diamond LA Award in America and the uh, London Golden Lion Awards. But it never got on TV because it was too long a documentary. And like I said, I wasn't really looking because I know it's a, still doing its thing on YouTube, but I generally wanted to like, just reach everyone with it with that and that that would have been my legacy well mate i can honestly say it is beautifully done it is so moving especially at the end as well where you you finish the tough mudder and then you were in your recording studio and doctors said years ago that you wouldn't be able to sing or use your mouth properly and you actually recorded um the verse yourself didn't you in a charity song which is really good actually by the way i love it I was about getting back to my feet again when everything yeah. is because of an inspiration that you know they said to me in the studio they said well you write the hook and you do it and, I, and these are all artists by the way in, in the limelight and I, I I said I love music I love because I think music resonates with all of us a song reminds us of something or something like that so I thought all right, cool and I said it's got to be inspirational so it took us all of about an hour to write it lay it down and do it and yeah it's just another experience it's just you know another thing because I'm not a singer and it, it's just another thing that I think, well, if you tell me, because I'm not a singer, I'm going to do it now. Yeah. yeah. The, mindset, the mindset is always, yeah. that's why I tell everyone, if someone tell, even if you think you can't do it, that's that's your own limitations right there. Forget anyone else telling you. That's If my brain tells me, nah, that's silly. You can't sing. You sound like a husky, bloody, do you know what I mean? My voice is a weird voice, but then I thought, you know, done it. And Pete, like you said, a lot of people liked it and, and my thing was just so important, the message. It's always the message in it is just so important to me. But oh, thanks, and uh, you know, but that's, that is the message right there. Is that exactly, I'm not a singer, but I've still done it. At 100%, and that's what I want to bring across to everyone, that people that say, I can't do this, you absolutely can. And you are solid proof of that, mate. And you've warmed my heart today. You really have, mate, and I mean that. And I'm just so grateful that you've joined me. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. I'm going to get in the car one day and I'm going to drive down to see you, mate, and give you a big man hug. Yeah, I look forward to that, mate. I look forward to it. All right, Tell. Thank you so much, mate, for joining me, and we catch up soon. Thanks, Dave. Take care, mate. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week and take care.